Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt, where I take the week's financial news. That can be a bit concerning, misleading, and take you off course, and I make it actionable, understandable, and clear. We've got a great show for you this week. We are going to be looking at some Wall Street Journal articles, and we may have a Morgan Household bonus at the very end, so you're going to want to stay tuned for a shot of optimism amidst some headlines that have been a bit dreary. So for this week, we're going to look at a Wall Street Journal article that talks about investors seeing shifts in Europe's fortunes. So this goes back to my gong that I've been banging for years about the importance of international diversification. We'll see if I'm finally vindicated. Time will tell. A Wall Street Journal article headlined a $42 billion question, why aren't Americans ditching big banks? So this is something I've been wondering, and the Wall Street Journal comes out with it. We're going to discuss how the human works, how the human mind works, and how it can block us from making helpful decisions. And then we're going to look at a Wall Street Journal article that discusses what happens when you place money in private real estate funds, these private real estate investment trusts. Headlines, investors cash out from commercial property funds. So let's start from the top, investors see shift in Europe's fortunes. This is by Anna Hertenstein. Headline, investors see sh- shift in Europe's fortunes. Subheadline, the regions beaten down stocks are seeing a recovery after a period of pessimism brought on by the invasion of Ukraine, a subsequent jump in energy prices, and the highest inflation in decades. Now, I want you just to think for a moment. I want you to have an exercise together. I put down on your desk. You're sitting at your desk and I put down two investment opportunities. One of these investment opportunities is the United States of America. And I tell you, you can buy every stock in the United States of America. The other I put down is you can buy the world. Everything but the United States of America. Japan and Europe and a smattering of emerging market countries. What would you like to buy? What's your instinct in that moment? Well, if you're like me and you're like most investors, you'll go with the United States of America for a couple reasons. One is something called home bias. You're familiar with it. My listeners, I'm pretty sure 98% are United States citizens. So there's something called home bias where there's a comfort in knowing this is this is what I'm familiar with. But what else is going on? Why else did you? Because why else would you choose the United States of America? Well, it just seems like things are a little distraught around the world. But what's the variable I didn't give you? With any, I kind of did an exercise there and I I, I tricked you, listener, a little bit. I, I put those two things on your desk. I said, you can buy the United States of America, you can buy the rest of the world. What did I not tell you? I didn't tell you the price. I didn't tell you the price. And so investing... Is a, it's an anticipation game. Now, I believe the global stock market should be invested in for, for psychology reasons, human psychology reasons. I believe it's very difficult to stick with an investment plan over a long period of time unless your diversification is complete. I would argue that the United States alone is not complete diversification. So what's going on in the stock market? Will it continue? I don't know. But what this article outlines is that Europe, foreign investors, I'll read, foreign investors have snapped up European assets in a marker 
of that international appetite flows into exchange-traded funds holding eurozone, we're talking about eurozone-based stocks, but which are denominated in other currencies, rose to the highest monthly level since early 2021, last month. So what's happening? These, these global stocks, and in this instance, they're talking about Europe, which is a big component of international stocks, they've been beaten down for so long. People are now saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think there's value here. I think this may be something I need to buy. Now, in this article, there is a graph. This is where readers go to. This is a graph that talks about the Euro stocks 50. It's kind of our S&P 500 versus the S&P 500 over the last six months. What do you think has performed better? The Ukraine war is, is going on. Terrible inflation in Europe. We've got all sorts of political struggles in Europe. What do you think has performed better? The Euro stocks 50 over the last six months or the S&P 500 over the last six months? The answer class is the Euro stocks 50. Huh? How is that possible? Well, investing is a dynamic business. You're not just voting on where what's the most stable place in the world or, or you're not even voting on who's going to earn more. It's, it's about price you're anticipating. So will this trend continue? I don't know. But just put this hat on, investor. If you were to look at this chart over the next six months and the Euro stocks 50 outperformed the S&P 500 again, what if it did it again and again and again and again? And you only have U.S. stocks. How are you going to handle that? Will you be able to stick with your U.S.-only strategy? Or are you going to be tempted to buy high, sell low, rotate into categories? Most investors, the average investor earns about nothing per year. Nothing. Like zero. That's what the average investor does. Because they buy at the wrong time. They sell at the wrong time. They're rotating into expensive fees. Tax inefficient strategies. That's zero. Part of that zero is this rotation strategies. So you're, they're chase, performance chasing. Don't do it. So be willing to diversify. Be willing to push past some of that home bias and also some of the headline risk that you see. Invest, invest everywhere at a low cost. That's what's going to give you the best shot. And then this article, the $42 billion question, why aren't Americans ditching big banks? Well, Big banks still pay next to nothing on savings, but their customers aren't yet moving much money to higher yielding alternatives. The article continues. In theory, savers could have earned $42 billion more in interest in the third quarter if they moved their money out of the five largest banks by deposits to the five highest yielding savings accounts, none of which are offered by the big banks. Hmm. So the five big banks, Bank of America, think if you're in this group, investor Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, U.S. Bank Corp. and Wells Fargo paid an average of 0.4% on consumer deposits and savings and money market accounts during the quarter. The five highest yielding savings accounts paid an average of 2.14 during the same period. Now, I can get you better than that. Okay, so there, a lot of online banks are paying 3% and a lot of money market funds are paying over that. But these five banks, those big five banks, the Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, etc., they, they hold about half of all the money kept at U.S. commercial banks. Half. Since the start of 2019, Americans have lost out on at least $291 billion in interest by keeping their savings in the five biggest banks. Why? The, the article asks, why haven't savers moved their money? Oh, Gary Zinnerman has an idea. He says, opening a new bank account is time-consuming. And he also says, people don't think critically about financial decisions. I can say amen to that. 
Big banks also serve a lot of depositors with small accounts, and this is a fair this is a fair reason not to not to move, where it just wouldn't make much difference. If you have a thousand bucks in a big bank, eh, you're you're not making a whole lot moving. But there's some psychology going on. They interview an Alicia Gillum, who has been with Bank of America for 26 years. She has no interest in searching for a new bank, even though her savings of more than 100 grand is earning no interest. Her loyalty has earned her platinum honor tier status, which affords her a 0.04% interest rates on her savings instead of the 0.01 that the bank normally pays. Miss Gillum, 45-year-old who works in sales at a healthcare company in Phoenix, said she also gets no-fee banking, discounts on mortgage origination fees, and reduced interest rates on auto and home equity loans. Savings is on the back burner, she said. So let's back up the truck here. Now, it might be easy to be critical of Miss Gillum. That's my temptation. But let's empathize her with her for a bit. She, this stuff, I used to think this was trivial. It is not. She has platinum honors, tier status. But listen, what does that get her? It gets her garbage. It gets her 0.04% interest on her savings. That's garbage. That's offensive. If that's platinum honors, tier status, I'd love to know what I don't even know what's higher than platinum honor. Double diamond maybe gets you 0.06%. Understand, 3% is what you can get. It. Anybody can get no status at Capital One 360 or any number of online banks. So what marketing has, has really influenced Miss Gillum and the desire not to change. Now, there's three grand on the ground for Miss Gillum to pick up. Now, is that worth her time? She may say no. Uh, I would encourage her to make that move. Another, another person was interviewed, a David Cavindrew, a 60-year-old self-employed CPA in San Diego. He recently began moving money into a high-yield savings account lending club, but he still holds most of his 120 grand at Chase, earning 0.01%. He's quoted, I'm old-fashioned. I like to be able to see my money, Mr. Cavindrew said. With brick-and-mortar banks, you have that feeling that it's not going anywhere. Okay. Again, let's not be hard on this gentleman who's been so candid. I would tell him, just because you see that brick and mortar, it is no more safe there than it is in an online bank. Safety with savings comes from the FDIC, that depository insurance company. That's where savings are from in the health of the bank. It, it ain't got nothing to do with looking at a brick building on a corner. Now, of course, that might the psychology there affects it, but hear it from me, that, that, that doesn't matter. So... So that psychology, that marketing, we may chuckle at how it's influencing the people. It influences us just the same. I'll even confess there was a friend of the show and of the podcast and of, and of my own that offered me a way to cut fees on uh, transaction fees I received for my business, Robert Financial. But it, it was all these hoops that I, that are, I had to do all these things, call these people to do it. And I just said, I don't want to do it. I just didn't want to do it. I think that's what these, some of these folks are feeling. I, I, you know, now, if you have a guide, that's what I do. I'm, I'm a financial advisor. I will guide you through that. So if, if you're a listener and you're, you're feeling overwhelmed, oh, I know I should do this, well, just hire a guide. Let me take you through it. Let me show you how to do it. Because I, I just empathize. The more I do this, the more I appreciate that inertia can be the most powerful force in the universe, and it can really, the psychology there can really affect us. So be willing to shop those deposits uh, and be willing to get help if you need it. Next one, Wall Street Journal by Conrad Putzier and Peter Grant. 
headlined investors cash out from commercial property funds. Big and small investors are queuing up to pull money out of real estate funds. The latest sign that the surge in interest rates is threatening to upend the commercial property sector. So Blackstone is a very large private equity company with huge real estate funds. Last week, the article says Blackstone Inc.'s last week said it would limit the amount of money investors could withdraw from its $69 billion flagship real estate fund following a surge in redemption request. Starwood Capital Group shortly after notified investors that it was also restricting withdrawals in a $4.6 billion fund, according to a person familiar with the matters. The Blackstone and Starwood funds are two of the largest non-traded real estate investment trusts, a popular investment structure with wealthy individuals. Let's, let's do some definitional work here. What is a real estate investment trust? There are publicly traded ones and private ones. The public ones are on the stock market. You can trade them anytime you want. Tons of you know, public storage may be one you're familiar with. It is a very large publicly traded storage company that you buy shares like you buy Coca-Cola or General Electric or Nike. You just buy the share, sell the share whenever you want. But the Real Estate Investment Trust has tax advantages where it's single taxation so long as over 90% of the activity is, is real estate in nature. So it's, it's a partnership type structure that is supposed to be helpful. Now, these private REITs, which I'm not a huge fan of, because the fee structure is opaque, and here you go, liquidity crisis number one, they don't offer that sort of liquidity. They have what's called gating, where oop, close the gate, like a shepherd with the sheep trying to get out, saying, nope, 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 you can't leave. And what's happening is a bunch of investors, particularly now, are looking at, wow, if I can get 4.6% on a U.S. Treasury note, or 4% on a this, this bond or that bond, do I really want to take the risk on of real estate and all these different markets and maybe maybe I need the money. So these companies are facing a problem. They have to pay this money out. Now it's too much. They can't they can't pull it. These in, these investors are kind of stuck. Okay? So it's it's always good to look at vehicles like this when storms come. When when everything's hot and real estate's going great and things are going great, it's really not very instructive listener to scrutinize these vehicles because you're really going to see good news all the way around. When storms come or the tide comes out, you realize some of the weaknesses of these structures. So in this case, this, this would be a weakness. This would be something that would not be favorable to you, the investor. Not only is the fee structure opaque, it's difficult for you to understand the asset values. It's difficult for you to get your money out. What's going to happen? I don't know. Uh, should interest rates continue to rise? Should real estate values continue to deteriorate? They, yes, they can limit the run on the bank, but it, uh, these redemptions will continue. And it, you're not in a very fun spot as an investor because at what value are you getting the money? Is the market setting that value? At a publicly real estate investment trust, the market sets a price all day, every day. And these private structures, you're trusting the fund sponsor. You're trusting Blackstone to accurately tell you what the value is and then pay you on that value. So this, I suspect, is going to be happening more and more should interest rates rise or just stay here. You're going to have more and more challenges to some of these property funds who, who don't have that liquidity. So what are we to make of this? Well, liquidity should be a good thing. Now, oftentimes, because we're humans, we have psychology, we bail on things quick. It ain't always a good thing. But it should be. 
anytime you enter a vehicle, ask yourselves, is this something I can turn into cash quick? That's okay if the answer is no, but why is that? And if, if someone else holds the keys, it's not a lot of fun, right? If you own this property direct, maybe you could sell, maybe you couldn't, you'd at least have the keys. If you owned a publicly traded REIT, at least you could click a button and, and get your cash out. In this instance, you're really locked up. And this happens all the time. So not just, this isn't just Blackstone and Starwood and real estate, any sort of private fund structure. My experience is, this is on page eight of the fine print, the gating mechanism. People don't really think about it. Here comes the, the financial storm. Uh-oh. And in closing, I like, I like ending on a positive note. Morgan Housel on his blog uh, recently took some data from his book, The Psychology of Money, which I like. And he was instructing us to consider the long term and all the bad things that can happen. So right now people might be telling you, oh, buckle up. This is bad. This is bad. Go to cash. Be in panic mode. We should not do that. So what Housel says is, economies, markets, and careers often follow a path of growth amid loss. He continues, here's how the U.S. economy performed over the last 170 years. 170 years, 170 years. He's going back to 1850 to present, and he has a chart on real GDP per capita. Okay, gross domestic product per capita, per person. Real. Okay, that means we're adjusting for inflation. And it, in 1850, it looks like we're at about... It's a logarithmic scale, so it's not super easy, but maybe 3000 bucks real GDP. We're now up, and this goes to 2019, up to about, I mean, it looks like it's 70 grand or so. But did you know, during that period, it's up to the right, 1.3 million Americans died while fighting nine major wars. Roughly 99.9% .9 of all companies that were created went out of business. Four U.S. presidents were assassinated. 675,000 Americans died in a single year from a flu pandemic. 30 separate natural disasters killed at least 400 Americans each. 33 recessions lasted a cumulative 48 years. I'll say that again. Over those 170 years, 33 recessions lasted a cumulative 48 years. The number of forecasters who predicted any of those recessions rounds to zero. The stock market fell more than 10% from a recent high at least 102 times. Stocks lost a third of their value at least 12 times. Annual, this is good for today, Annual inflation exceeded 7% in 20 separate years. The words economic pessimism appeared in newspapers at least 29,000 times, according to Google. And yet, our standard of living increased 20-fold in these 170 years, but barely a day went by that lacked tangible reasons for pessimism. A mindset that can be paranoid and optimistic at the same time is hard to maintain, because seeing things as black or white takes less effort than accepting nuance. But you need short-term paranoia to keep you alive long enough to exploit long-term optimism. I'll say that one again. You need short-term paranoia to keep you long enough, alive long enough to exploit long-term optimism, okay? That 170-year vision, well, that's that long-term optimism. But not borrowing a lot of money, having an emergency fund, having investments that are simple and transparent, ooh, that's that kind of that short-term paranoia. That's that, that marriage of those two ideas. So as always, listener, let's keep those costs low. Let's keep that time rising long. Let's keep that investing simple. That's what's going to give you the best shot on your investing journey. Look forward to having you listening next time.